When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Coming in from the cold looks back across three centuries of the beautiful game in England and contains references to social attitudes and language from the past that some listeners may find challenging. again cutting back inside but here's Raheem Sterling on the hat-trick slots it in beautifully goal number five the Liverpool take it quickly in by Venice Aldridge going up Barnes is in there and Barnes has equalized a rare headed goal for John Barnes and here's Regis they're caught square this is a chance oh he did it superbly Went for Flowers, he didn't pull loudly enough. Henry decided he had to take it. Three defenders and a goalkeeper ahead of him. Oh, what a finish from Andy Cole! Taylor doggedly trying to stay with Billy Bonds. Bonds a little cross and Clyde Burst to go! Number three, Clyde Burst! This is the story of black male footballers in the English game. A story of resilience, incredible feats, and inspiring success. I'm Jessica Crichton. This is Coming In From The Cold. A story you can follow on TalkSport and all of your favourite podcast platforms. And there's no offside. Ian Wright! They have a new hero! Some of the biggest and brightest names in English football are black. Around a third of male professional players in England and often more than half of the national team are black or mixed race. From the dark days of stadium-wide monkey chanting and far-right death threats aimed at black players, to all players, irrespective of race, kneeling in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, the game has come a long way, but an epic journey still awaits. But let's start at the beginning. Before the 80s, before the 70s even. No, we're going way back. To show you how the black presence in English football has been there from the early days of the beautiful game. In this first episode, we'll be finding out about how black players have been a fixture in the game since the very beginnings of professional football in England. We'll learn about a player who was a pariah on the pitch, but a hero in the field. And how a colour bar existed for the England national team. You'll learn about people you may never have heard of, but you should know them. They're trailblazers and history makers, players who made a place for themselves and the black and mixed race footballers who would follow them. Here's one of the greatest to ever do it for Liverpool and England, John Barnes. 
Well, this is where sport is truth and football is truth. Because once upon a time, you had the narrative with black players, they're fast, they don't think too much, so therefore don't put them in positions of responsibility. Goalkeepers, central defenders, defensive midfield players. This was the narrative in the 60s and the 70s. But you must have had black goalkeepers, black defensive midfield players, black defenders who never made it because of the stereotypical perception of them. Obviously, things changed because if you wanted to win, you want to get the best. And this is where I say football is truth. The game itself gives black players now an opportunity in any position, in any team, which shows that sport is truth in terms of if you have the ability, you'll be given an opportunity. So let's begin our journey further back than the 1970s, way before the Windrush sailed, earlier than the World Wars. Have you ever heard of Arthur Wharton, Walter Toll, Jack Leslie? I have to be very, very honest, because the names you mentioned there, they were never given to us like that, were they? Because kind of like you swept under the carpet. We, we have to be brutally honest. That's Andy Cole, and this is Viv Anderson. I've never heard of Jack Leslie. And I'm saying, how come somebody like me have never heard of Jack Leslie? Paul Canaville. Nobody hears about these players. And this is the vast history of black players that were playing here before me. Brendan Batson. Not when I was playing, those people didn't come to my attention until I was long retired. Um, I mean, that's a story in itself. It's 1885, and a young goalkeeper named Arthur Wharton is about to make his debut for Darlington. Like any other player, Arthur would have been hoping that his nervous energy didn't lead him to make any mistakes. Little did he know then, but as England's first recognised black professional footballer, it would be in his footsteps that stars like Cyril Regis, John Barnes and Raheem Sterling would later tread. Born in Ghana, then known as the Gold Coast, Wharton came to England in his late teens and proved himself to be a champion at almost any and every sport he tried. His name is the first name on official sprint records. It was 100 yards and obviously went into 100 metres, but he'd set the first sprint record in 1886 at the 3A's Championship and he ran it in 10 seconds even, as they called it, and that was the first time that time had been recorded and he was a world champion, as I say, for three years Mm. on the trot. And then in football, he also played for Preston North End, which was the, you know, Barcelona Man United of the time. Historian and filmmaker Phil Facilli is an authority on the history of black footballers in English football, having written a number of books on the subject, including the first black footballer on the life and times of Arthur Wharton. Arthur's story is a riches to rags story. He came from quite a prominent, what was then called a Gold Coast, a mixed Ghanaian family. And his uncle was the proprietor of the Gold Coast Times, FC Grant. So they were quite a high-profile family. And Arthur, ironically, suffered because of his sporting kind of triumphs. There was that paradox that while his family sent him over to Britain to be educated, the idea was that he'd go back and become part of the developing Gold Coast kind of elite uh, people of colour you know, that were pressing for, obviously, uh, independence and end of colonialism and stuff. And so that was the idea. But he never went back because his sporting triumphs kept him in Britain. And when he did apply for a, a post in the Gold Coast, on the forms at the public record, the National Archives, he's got written in the margins, 
100 yards champion is an unsuitable qualification for the post of schoolmaster. A black goalkeeper is unusual in English football, even today, let alone at the time when English football was becoming professionalised in the late 19th century. Here's former England, Liverpool and Manchester City keeper David James. Arthur, the first black player, you know, the the situation again when you look at the, uh, the sort of population and the change in population in, in England, you know, these guys were, were flag bearers for what, what I had as a career and what players are going through now from minority backgrounds, if you like. And from what I understand, what they had to endure was, I say horrific because of what we or where we are now, um, but what they had to endure was commonplace in their society. So for them to, and again, football wasn't this million, million pound a year industry then, this was the love of the game. So for those guys to actually, they still pursued the love of the game. And I think as, a, as an athlete, as a competitor, that's the side of things that, that I love about what these guys did. As possibly the only black man playing in England at the time, Wharton became one of the most well-known players in the country. With a career spanning 17 years, Arthur was known for his unique style of goalkeeping. He was called a showman. One kind of snooty London journalist said, you know, the, the, the goal is no place for a skylark, you know, because Wharton used to hang from the goalposts and catch the ball between his legs. And he'd also crouch down by the post. And then it said he sprung into action in the last moment. He wasn't doing it because he was disinterested or messing around. At that time, the rules were different. You could knock a goalkeeper over. In fact, teams had what they called was a rusher. And the rusher's job was to knock the goalie over with or without the ball. So Arthur, by crouching down by the goalpost, couldn't be knocked over. And, and the goalpost was also support. So it was a clever kind of strategy. It was his goalkeeping strategy. Same with, sorry, hanging from the crossbar. If you hung from the crossbar, which is quite a feat anyway to catch the ball between your legs, but again, you couldn't be knocked over. And so, and he's also called the goalkeeper with the prodigious punch. And it said sometimes he liked to connect not only with the ball, but with the, with the opposition player's head <laughs> because it was a really rough and tumble game then. You had to give as good as you got. And he certainly did that. He went to a college in Darlington and he played for Darlington. Darlington were quite a big team then. He also played for the Newcastle area representative team. He got noticed by Preston North End. This is all in the 1880s. He signed as pro because at Darlington he was an amateur. He stayed as an amateur because if he went professional with Preston North End, and this was just at the turn of professionalism, that had been introduced in 85 and he, he joined them in 86, but it would have disqualified him from the three A's championships. So he stayed amateur until 89 when he joined Rotherham and that's when he became professional. Then uh, Sheffield United uh, were formed in 1892 and he was one of the first players to sign for Sheffield United, a much bigger city club. Um and then he went back to Rotherham. Then he went across the Pennines and played for Staley Bridge Rovers and Ashton North End. There were Lancashire League teams. Then he joined Stockport County, where he finished his career in about 1902. Despite a successful sporting career, Wharton's personal demons would prove his toughest opponents. His sporting triumphs 
shut off the doors culturally with his family in Ghana because they thought, why is he spending so much time being a sportsman? We want him back to, you know, um, become part of our tradition here. So he ended up working in the mines and was a, what was called a haulage hand, which is a tough job. That was pulling the, the trucks with the coal in. And he had a troubled personal life as well. He, he kind of, you know, he had children with his wife's sister and stuff. And uh, while he had this public acclaim, he had a lot of private grief. So I think Arthur, if the Frank Sinatra song I did it my way, kind of applies to anybody who applies to Arthur. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Wharton's place as England's first black professional footballer might have been a small footnote in history, if not for the efforts of Sean Campbell, a campaigner and artist from Darlington who stumbled across Arthur's story by chance and founded the Arthur Wharton Foundation in response. Let's go right back to the beginning. This young man came over from Jamestown, Ghana. Back in the day when Arthur was there, that was really the centre of Ghana. And Arthur came over to England to study Methodist preaching in the same line as his father. He came to Darlington uh, back end of 1882, stroke early 1883. And whilst he was here, the then trainer of Darlington Cricket and Football Club saw this young man with a turn of speed. And the next thing you know, Arthur's playing football, he's running, he's playing cricket, he's playing rugby. And as we know now, he made history as the world's first black professional footballer, the world's first ever fastest man on the planet. He also became a professional cricketer, professional rugby player and a cycling champion. Doing all of this at the same time is what marks Arthur Wart now as an original pioneer and trailblazer. His story is remarkable. And without Arthur's involvement in all of those sports, you wouldn't see the very people we are seeing playing those sports today. Through campaigning, fundraising and celebrity endorsements, including one from Stevie Wonder, Sean managed to deliver a monument fit for an icon. A 16-foot statue of Wharton, leaping high to save a goal-bound strike, now stands proudly at the centre of St George's Park, the home of the England national team. I'm a guy who learnt the story of Arthur and then I, I just couldn't resist not doing something about it because it's like all of us. If we have children and they do well, we pat them on the back and say, well done. But Arthur never got any of that from the very people that he should have got it from, which are the football institutions. So I was sat down thinking, right, campaign. I'm a, I'm a campaigner. What, 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 the, what the hell do you do? And I thought, right, this statue could be a symbol. It could be a physical reminder that whoever goes to St. George's Park should not forget the story of Arthur. As Wharton's statue was unveiled in 2014, one of those in attendance was the former Newcastle, Norwich and Brighton manager, Chris Hewton. Like Wharton, the former Republic of Ireland defender Hewton is of Ghanaian descent. I was actually made aware of him in my time at Newcastle because he had played in the area. But when you think of the era and when you think what she had to go through, it's really hard to imagine. And I think that gives us even more respect and the fact that um, the, there was an unveiling at St George's Park, I think, is progress. And I think it is the game appreciating, you know, what uh, what he went through. You know, as with, you know, some of the thoughts and the accolades of what, you know, Walter Tull is getting at this moment. 
The magnificent statue of Arthur at St. George's Park is a fitting tribute to a trailblazing hero. Water never played for the national team, but there was a media campaign for a call-up when he was at the height of his career, according to Phil Facilli. Northern Echo newspaper was saying Wharton for England. That was one of their back page headlines. And there's no way the FA at that time were going to pick a man of colour to play right. for England. Although Scotland had done it in 1881, Andrew Watson, he was mixed heritage like Arthur. And he captained Scotland when they, I think, when he captained, they beat England 5 or 6 0. Wow. I mean. Is that quite revolutionary then at that time? Oh, Scotland to have done that? Yeah, but Scotland's got a kind of very schizophrenic relationship with the slave trade and things because Andrew Watson's father was connected with the slave trade, he was Scottish. Arthur's grandparents were both Scottish, connected with the slave trade. Also in Scotland, they had a long tradition of educating people of colour at the universities. They weren't, there wasn't a colour bar at the Scottish universities like they tended to be elsewhere. So you did get people of colour educated in Scotland. And there is this difference between the tradition. You know, you had the first ever player of colour, Robert Walker, who played before Andrew Watson at Queen's Park. So you've got Robert Walker, Andrew Watson, then you had another John Walker playing in Scotland who went down to play for Lincoln. This is all in the 1800s. Despite what we may have learned in school, there were notable black populations in the UK prior to the Windrush generation. British historian, writer and academic Professor Paul Gilroy explains. In the 1800s, you know, we have a lot of records of people who had been slaves, who had been freed, Obviously, after the Lord Mansfield judgment, which said in rhetorical terms, the air of England was too pure for slaves to breathe. But what that judgment really meant legally was that if you had been an enslaved person, you couldn't be forced out of the country to go back into slavery. And that meant that there are people who had been slaves or who had freed themselves or had been freed, who come to Britain and who settle here and are part of that. At the turn of the century, while Arthur Wharton was still playing, a couple of mixed-race Scotsmen would play for English clubs. John Walker, mentioned earlier by Phil Facilli, played for Hearts and Lincoln. Often referred to by his nickname Darkie, Walker is believed to have been the first black man to play in both the English and Scottish leagues. And Billy Clark, he moved south to play for Bristol Rovers, Aston Villa and Bradford. And while playing for Villa in 1901, he became the first black footballer to score in the top flight. But the next man in our story, well, he might just deserve this whole series to himself. A handsome star player who broke through prejudice to change a British institution before dying a war hero and being embraced as an inspiration for generations to come. Walter Toll was born to a Caribbean father and English mother in Folkestone on the Kent coast in 1888. And if you made a film of his life, the reviews would probably say it seemed a little too far-fetched to be true. Walter was quite an incredible character and his father, Daniel, came to Britain in the 1870s and settled in Folkestone, had six children and tragically, Walter's parents died quite young within a couple of years of each other. So his brother and, and him went into 
Dr. Stevenson's orphanage in Bethnal Green. So they had a lot of trauma early on in their life. And obviously being two young black lads in Folkestone, where there wasn't a, a big kind of population of colour, had its difficulties and obstacles. So, and then they were transported to uh, London, biggest city in the world at the time, obviously more multicultural, multi-ethnic, but still there were two young lads from a small town in Kent at the time. Then his brother was taken out of the orphanage and he was adopted by a Glasgow family, so Walter's left all alone in the orphanage and he still manages to excel uh, the, uh, the sport he loves. He loved football, but he was also a very good cricketer. And, uh, you know, and as I'm sure you and lots of your listeners know, he went on to become one of Britain's first black army officers. Now, for a working class orphanage boy to become an officer in the British Army is something anyway. I mean, it never, it hadn't happened before the First World War. They didn't have any working class officers. But to be a man of colour, when the Manual of Military Law said that people of colour couldn't become officers. It was just, uh, you know, it was a, a legal prohibition. So basically, they threw the rule book away for Walter. Now, that was on top of football career where he played for Spurs for four seasons. Not many first-team games. And then Northampton Town, where he was very happy. He also started off, he started off his career at Clapton, which is great. <laughs> at Spurs... He had a great start to his career. I mean, even before he played in the Football League in the first team, he went on tour to South America. I mean, imagine that, you know, like he's still legally an orphanage boy he, he, until he was 21. So prior to being officially released from the orphanage, he's on tour, he's on a boat to South America, to Argentina and Uruguay. So Walter, I, I, you could claim, was the first black professional to play in Latin America. And you think of all the great players that have come out of Latin America. Walter Toll was a skillful, intelligent attacker who signed for Spurs after making a massive impression with top amateur side Clapton FC. Walter made his debut for Tottenham in September 1909 against Sunderland. Despite his skill and talent, or maybe because of it, racial abuse from the terraces would have a massive impact on Waters' career in the top flight. In a game in Bristol in that first season, he got some seriously bad racist abuse. I mean, he would get it every game, obviously, but it was particularly bad. And I don't think the Spurs board knew what to do, to be honest. To be fair to them, they signed Walter, so they liked him as a player. His colour didn't matter, but... When he got the abuse at Bristol, his career never got back on track after that. And that match at Bristol, the reason why it's so significant in another way, it's the first time that I could find racism being reported or being headlined in a British newspaper in a sports report. Paul Hayward is a sports journalist who, until recently, was chief sports writer at the Daily Telegraph. I don't think there was any awareness of any kind of need to recognise racial equality, either on the sporting field or indeed in society. You know, we're talking about a time when much of the British Empire was still in place. Those people hadn't started to examine, I don't think, racist and imperialist views of the world. And it was just a language that people of that time very often wouldn't have even 
encountered, I don't think. So the press at the time, the sporting press, don't forget, was was much smaller than it is now. You know, you, you look at national newspapers from the 20s and 30s and there's perhaps half a page of sport or a page of sport. So it was all very factual. I haven't come across in any of my England research any piece that addresses those sorts of questions. I think it was just suppressed, uh, not talked about, and the black or minority players of that era uh, were expected just to sort of get on with it and not complain, I think. The next black footballer to play for Tottenham exactly 70 years later was Chris Hewton. He made his Spurs debut in 1979 and went on to make nearly 400 appearances for the club. When I made my debut for Tottenham, no, I wasn't aware of Walter Toll. Um, it wasn't so long afterwards that I did ask the question and I um, was given the information, but certainly no, I wasn't aware. Mm. I think probably the reason why is, it is because, you know, it was such a big gap. You know, this is not a black player playing for a club and then, you know, some 10 years later, you know, another black player plays. Now, this was, you know, quite some time before. So, you know, when I look at my debut and the time that I had, and then I think about what Watertal went through, it's hard to imagine, I must admit. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes it's almost, you know, it's almost unbelievable. You can't, it's very difficult to put yourself in, in his position and what he would have gone through. And, you know, so much that I've, that I've read, the abuse, and of course the times, you know, it's sometimes, as with other things in history, it's, it's very difficult to comprehend. No doubts linked to the racial abuse he suffered, Arthur's top flight career stalled. He eventually moved on to Northampton Town in 1911, then managed by Herbert Chapman, who'd go on to become a managerial legend at Arsenal. And it's through Chapman that Walter Tull and Arthur Wharton became unwittingly connected. Now, Herbert Chapman, as we know, went on to manage Arsenal and there's a statue of him outside Arsenal. He's, he, he brought Arsenal to kind of the prominence they've, they've got now, really. But Herbert Chapman was signed by for Staley Bridge Rovers when he was 19 by Arthur Wharton. Oh. Who... What? Yeah, Arthur Wharton... At the time, they didn't really have managers, but Arthur Wharton was playing for Staley Bridge Rovers. Arthur Wharton's career went from the 18... 80s to 1901-2 season. Uh-huh. We finally played for Stockport County. But in the 1890s, he played for two Lancashire League teams, Ashton North End and Staley Bridge Rovers. And while he was at Staley Bridge, they called the team Wharton's Brigade, basically because he was a big star, well-known. Mm-hmm. He ran it. Mm-hmm. And he lived in Rotherham in Yorkshire for many years. And he married a Yorkshire woman. Herbert Chapman was from Kiverton Park, a small mining village in South Yorkshire, near to where Arthur lives. So he knew all about Herbert and the promise that he was showing. So you've got that kind of triangle between Arthur, Walter and Herbert. Uh, and they were all Methodists. So I think that was, that was the common link as well, that they had that in common. Walter found his home at Northampton Town and it's here that he played his best football. It was his happiest time in terms of his football. He obviously thrived. He scored four goals in one match, three goals in another. It was, although it was a kind of 70 miles out of London, less cosmopolitan, etc. I think he, he felt at home. 
Walter, he played at centre forward sometimes, but mainly what we'd, what we'd say now left midfield is left wing half. I mean, his job really in the team was to supply balls out to the wingers. That was the job of the wing half. You got the ball out to the wing. So that was his main attacking role. Defensively, he was a very tough, robust player. You know, he was often accused of being too robust, you know, but I think he just, he, he knew how to tackle his full weight. He knew how to stick up for himself. Any midfield players, it's a battle. So, you know, and he knew how to do that. And, and as a man of colour, obviously, some people didn't take to that kind of, you know, a, a person sticking up for himself. So he was very skillful as well. He had great balance. You can see from photographs, the few action photos there are of Walter. He had really good balance. He was left-footed and he was a very good passer of the ball. That's the, you know, he could play long and short, weighted passes. He had a lot of all-round skills to his game. I think he was at what, what we now call a, a playmaker. Walter had that, there was one report that said he was the most intelligent player on the field and also that he was never rushed. He always played like he had time. It said he, he used the sidesteps reminiscent of a boxer to off-balance opposition players and then play the ball. So I think he had a lot to his game. I don't think he was the fastest player on the field, but I think he used his intelligence and his balance and his these kind of skills to, to get around that. Toll made more than 100 appearances for Northampton Town over the next three seasons, playing under the guidance of Chapman. But then, in 1914, his career, and football as a whole, came to a sudden stop. When World War I broke out, Walter signed up to fight for his country in what was said to be the war to end all wars. And, as if his football career didn't already set his place in history, he became a British Army officer, at a time when people of colour were barred from doing so. There were significant numbers of imperial and colonial soldiers from all over the world who served in the British Army during World War I. And there's a sense, I think, that we can say that if you want to be recognised as belonging to a nation, that your preparedness to die for that nation, that your preparedness to kill for that nation has been, for many, a measure of your belonging. If you're prepared to risk your life, if you're prepared to take someone else's life in the name of a nation, then, you know, you, you are someone who's going to expect to be recognised as being part of that nation. Walter was killed in March 1918, leading an assault during the Second Battle of the Somme. Despite valiant efforts by his troops, Toll's body was never recovered. Walter Toll suffered for the game that he loved and became a success. He died fighting for the country that he loved and became a true hero. Toll's extraordinary life story is now rightly part of the school curriculum in England. Darren Lewis is the Daily Mirror's football correspondent. He believes that the stories of Toll and Arthur Wharton should be celebrated. These are the pioneers, the ones who went before any of the superstar players of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now the millennium. These guys went through it all, and they are true inspirations. And really, all of us as football fans should be aware of the stories of these guys. Writer and football historian Phil Facilli. It goes without saying because it's part of our history, and it, it leads you into other aspects of history, like early, you know, like 
the slave trade, uh, plantations, uh, like colonialism, you know, uh, like um, the history of, of, of people of colour in Britain that have been a generation upon generation before, you know, before, before slavery, before Wimrush. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, um, y- you've got, y- you know, you've got that wonderful kind of multifaceted tradition that should be part of mainstream British history and sport allows us to bring that out because in sport the team want the best players. Emmy Anura is the author of Pitch Black, the story of black British footballers and the brother of former Huddersfield town striker Ify Anura. Emmy believes that the stories of English football's early black pioneers help connect the dots and paint a fuller picture of Britain's rich and complex history. What you find is, is that Black footballers who played in the British Isles in both England and Scotland come from the British colonies in the West Indies and in Africa. So Clyde Best, for example, an English team had gone to the West Indies. Clyde Best was playing for Bermuda. He spotted this young kid playing football, brought him over to England, gave him a professional contract. And that experience is kind of quite similar to how... Black footballers found themselves playing in um, within English football. It's not like today where you could be black and French, black and Dutch, black and German, black and Spanish, black and Portuguese. The English football didn't draw upon the kind of African diaspora that was settled in Europe. It drew upon its colonies for its football and talent until the point at which the Windrush generation kind of had kids, had sons, were established, settled down, and no sons kind of came through the football and playing local football and came through the, the system to enter into clubs and become professional footballers. Sean Campbell of the Arthur Wharton Foundation is adamant that these stories are important for us all. So these stories are always coming through, and it's as we've always said, and the reason for the Arthur Wharton statue at St George's Park, which stands proudly at 16 feet tall, it was always a case of, look, those people in power will never understand and accept that black lives do matter unless black history matters. When black history matters and it's documented and it's part of the education process, black lives will matter to those in power because they'll understand it. But at the moment, they don't. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, we all know that Viv Anderson was the first black man to play for the senior England side in 1978, right? But did you know that more than 50 years before that, Back in the 1920s, England should have welcomed its first black international. Here's Viv Anderson. So I get a phone call uh, in the middle of a lockdown from a journalist from the BBC saying, um, I'd like to do an interview with you uh, on regarding this Jack Leslie article we're doing. I went, I've never heard of Jack Leslie. <laughs> he goes in to tell me who Jack Leslie was and what he achieved and all the rest of it. And I'm saying, how come somebody like me have never heard of Jack Leslie? This is this should be part of uh, our history, because especially in sport. As the world returned to a new normal after the Great War that claimed Walter Toll's life and those of millions of others, football returned. And as we entered the Roaring Twenties, the era of jazz, Josephine Baker and leaping Lindy Hoppers, a flying forward whose dad was from Jamaica, began catching people's eyes on the South Coast. Jack Leslie was his name, and goals were his game. Leslie was Plymouth Argyle's star player, and he had it all. Pace, skill, and deadly finishing. A prolific goal scorer and provider, he was a talent that burned so bright that he was picked for England, even though he played in the third tier. But then, FA selectors became aware of Jack's Caribbean heritage, and the whole game changed. From Barking in Essex It was a different time But I bet he got stick from all sides Now I'm sure it would have happened Wherever he played But he came to Plymouth Argyle And he stayed Jack Leslie's a Plymouth Argyle legend And I'm a, a lifelong Plymouth Argyle fan But I actually only learnt the story of him being picked for England And then deselected a year ago and I was so shocked that this player hadn't been sort of celebrated and also that injustice recognised before then that I kind of had to pick up on that story. I just felt that Jack Leslie was a player that really, really deserved recognition and a memorial because he achieved so much in his professional career. I mean, at the time, he was the only black player in the league for much of his career. And also, like, towards the end, he became the first black captain of a professional side. We're pretty sure of that. I mean, that's some achievement, a real pioneer. And yet, his story just seems to have kind of been forgotten about until now. Matt Tiller is a Plymouth Argyle fan and part of the Jack Leslie Foundation. Its crowdfund campaign has raised more than £100,000 to erect a statue in the player's honour in Plymouth. He was a player that, that 
His manager knew he was something special beyond the third division. And and so that, that call-up came. Obviously, people... I'm, I'd be very surprised if they didn't know the colour of his skin, even though he'd only just sort of emerged. You know, it was through his career, it was reported on. But somewhere along the line, someone said, yes, we want this guy in the team. But someone else, or some people, said, no, that can't happen. He was named in the team and then mysteriously disappeared before the match and never travelled to Ireland. Here's Greg Foxsmith from the Jack Leslie Foundation on his England deselection. Although, of course, we have to... Re- put our mind back there were no color photographs you know there wasn't social media so it you know not everyone on the committee might have have known that they would have just probably looked at the stats from around the country and looked at the goals rather than the color of his skin so certainly when the final team selection was made uh, somebody uh, raised a question mark about whether he was appropriate to play for England uh, and then all that followed was the deselection so it, it definitely was the factor. British historian, writer and academic Professor Paul Gilroy explains. The question of how blackness and Englishness can be connected is a really difficult and a controversial um, thing, even now. Because in, in British society, and this people won't like this, but I do believe that it's the case, and it doesn't give me any pleasure to say this, there's a sense in which our national identity as British people can sometimes be associated exclusively with a kind of idea of, of whiteness. I can remember years ago hearing at a cricket match, hearing people chanting, there ain't no black in the Union Jack. And uh, I took that and used it as a title for a book. And the reason it was interesting to me, the reason it sounded so important to me was because it seemed almost to kind of make national identity into a racial identity. Usually when people think about you know, you know racial identities and national identities, they think of them as being very separate. But I think we have to say that in Britain, those things have become very, very connected to one another. And in England, not Britain, in England now, um, I think we can say that there are particular issues. Jack was born in the East End of London in 1901 to a Jamaican father and English mother. His exploits for non-league team Barking Town led Argyle to snap him up in 1921. Primarily a winger or centre-forward, Jack would go on to score more than 130 goals and captain the club in his 14 seasons on the South Coast. Phil Facilli is author of Colouring Over the White Line, the history of black footballers in Britain. It was obviously gutted because he remembered it throughout his life and he wrote about it and when he was interviewed he spoke about it. The way people were selected then is the archaic FA kind of selection committee where you get, a, you know, people that aren't kind of too clued up about the game uh, from county FAs and they sit around a table and they say, oh, yes, so we've got a player in one of our teams in our, you know, in Devon. And, and so they put players forward. Then the idea about international selection at that time was you weren't creating a coherent, consistent squad that would play together over time. You're rewarding players for good performances at their clubs. Mm. And that's how people were chosen. The story goes that he was chosen, and it was by this FA International Selection Committee, and only afterwards it came out that he was a man of colour, and obviously people objected. The Daily Mirror's Darren Lewis picks up the story. 400 appearances, scored nearly 140 goals. 
And his manager called him in one day and basically said, look, you're being called up for England. And it was great for him, great for the club. And then when the papers came out a few days later, a guy called Billy Walker, if I remember rightly, was named. And he wasn't named at all. Um, but years, I learned years later, his grandchildren were talking about it and they were saying that he wasn't that bitter about it, which I I think they've been very generous, you know, because I think his goal record demanded that he would be called up, but he was never called up again. I asked Matt Tiller about Jack Leslie's reaction to what happened. Getting that call up for Jack must have been such an honour for him. To then be deselected, what would that have done to his, his psyche, his confidence, do you think? I don't think it was a surprise to him in the way that he talked about it. Because I think one of the things when people are kind of asking us about you know, the, the evidence, it was reported on at the time. And then Jack himself told the story in an interview in the 70s. And, you know, he said that the whole town was kind of buzzing when he, he got this news. What an honour for, for Plymouth. You know, we don't get players selected for England. Um, but then when it kind of, it, his selection kind of disappeared, he said people couldn't look him in the eye. It just wasn't talked about. And he kind of almost shrugged his shoulders and thought, well, you know, they just considered that I must be foreign. You know, it's that kind of, you know, it's something that you heard talked about in the kind of 70s and 80s that people, basically racist fans, had that view. But it was obviously the case then. And Jack kind of just got on with it. He was that kind of man, I think. I mean, his granddaughters say, yeah, it did upset him. Of course it did. It must have done. But it didn't affect his game. In fact, on the day that England were playing, he scored two goals for Argyle. <laughs> And there are actually articles in the press in 1925 asking the question, you know, was it Jack Leslie? And the FA denied it. The press association said, we were told that Jack was in the team. And um, it was kind of mysteriously reported locally. One um, journalist in a local paper said, as the matter of uh, Jack Leslie, my pen is under a ban. So something untoward was going on. And also kind of at the time, it was said, Jack Leslie will definitely be making his way into representative matches soon. And then towards the end of his career, in the Daily Mail, uh, one journalist wrote, had he been white, he would have been a certain English international. So I think that's pretty telling. He helped Argyle to promotion. They, they got their highest league position ever, fourth in the second division, which is remarkable for Ar Argyle. Other teams tried to sign him, but Bob Jack, his manager, wouldn't let him go. Not a surprise. He was too good. So I think here's, here's a player that should definitely have played for England. Here's England's Viv Anderson again. The list is endless, really. But we should be highlighting these people in our history books and letting people know what these people have gone through to get recognition that they never got for whatever reason. Mm. Well, we know what it was because it's overt racism back in the day. Yeah. There'd be loads of stories to tell. I mean, I, I just think it's a crying shame and I've spoke to the FA about this and I just think it's a crying shame. I keep on banging the gong but nobody seems to want to listen. And he never got to play because he was black. A one-man club in the professional game, Jack Leslie retired in 1935. He moved back to London from Plymouth and worked as a boilermaker, following a similar career path to his Jamaican father. Much later in life, in the 1960s, he worked in the boot room at West Ham. Here's Hammers legend Harry Redknapp. He used to do the boots. You know, he'd come to you before a game. Do you want long studs, short studs, medium? What do you want in your boots today? And he was just a great guy, you know, and... It's, it's sad to, to think that, you know, he would have been picked for England and then, you know, because he was black, he, he didn't get picked. I mean, it's just beyond belief, isn't it, really? He never used to talk about his football career. He didn't, he never used to discuss it. it you know, he just used to get on with his job and you'd have a chat with him, have a cup of tea, but he never ever mentioned about 
what a good player he was or anything else, you know. Mm. Maybe maybe we should have been doing his boots. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Jack Leslie also came across a young black striker on the come-up at Upton Park, Clyde Best. We used to talk many a time after the game, you know, and give me advice. But I still never knew that he was the next player himself because he never said, you know. I just knew him as Jack, and um, he would always call you in to ask you, hey, you happy with the boots? Don't need, do you need anything done or anything like that? And, you know, I'm glad that I had the privilege of meeting him and being in this company because, um, you know, he was a class act. And what I liked about Jack, he had the chance to play for England, but he never let it get him down, you know. That's what people have to understand in life. You're going to get beat up now and again, but it's how you bounce back. How many people have statues of them, you know, at their football club, you know, and he deserved it, you know. We'll hear a lot more from Clyde Best later in the series, but it's important that earlier pioneers like Jack Leslie are honoured. Matt Tiller is part of the Jack Leslie Foundation. During the campaign, we've one of the great things is that we've had so many memories and from people that remember him as a, as a person. But also, I spoke to a guy who's just turned ninety five, who saw Jack Leslie play, and and remembers the excitement when he and his striking partner Sammy Black got the ball. A real kind of rustle in the crowd would go up. They thought, yeah, a goal is coming. But not only that, he described him as a real gentleman, someone who played the the game in the right way. He never cheated. He never fouled. He told me a story about how his Dad sort of saw him watching it again. Maybe he was injured that that week. And um, yeah, he was just stood there at the stand watching the game. And his dad went over because he wanted to have a chat to him and just said he was just a real, like, lovely, humble gentleman. And and that's, you know, hearing those sort of memories of uh, through the campaign has kind of almost given it more credence. It's like, here's a man that really deserves celebrating. Jack Leslie may have been denied his chance to play for the Three Lions, but black and mixed race talent couldn't be held down forever. It would take a little while for a black player to run out in the white shirt of England, a leader of men who raised trophies and played alongside Bobby Moore. But we'll leave that story for next time. Join us then. Coming in from the cold is an unedited production for the Wireless Group and supported by the Audio Content Fund. Hear the rest of the series on TalkSport or subscribe to Coming In From The Cold on your favourite podcast app and smart speaker. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.